0: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 483 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am excited to have Francesca Gino on today. She is a professor at Harvard Business School. I love her work. And, well, we are going to talk about diffusing your next polarized conversation. Every leader I talk to is like, all my conversations are polarized these days. We're going to touch on Canadian truckers, um, why people who disagree with you aren't stupid, despite what you might think, and how to find new breakthroughs in leadership. So, if any of that is on your radar screen, fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a great episode. And this episode is brought to you by Leader. You can go to Leader. That's L E A D R rcom com and use the promo code carry C A R E Y to get twenty percent off your first year of their people development software. And by Pro Media Fire. For an amazing website and easy social media management, check out the all-in-one Creativo platform. You get a lifetime founder's discount as a listener of this podcast by going to creativo.org slash carry. So uh, I am so grateful for each of you. We are going to do something fun when we celebrate episode 500. We're going to mix things up a little bit around here. And we're closing in on that. And the reason we got here is because of you. It's because you listen. And not only do you listen, you share. This podcast keeps growing every year, almost every month these days. So welcome to all of our new listeners. If you find this helpful, please share it on social media. I try to reshare as often as possible. When you tag us, I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, C Newhoff on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, also just text some friends this episode if you found it helpful because all of your friends are going through a difficult time as well. Francesca Gino has been honored as one of the world's top 40 business professors under the age of 40 and one of the world's 50 most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. Professor Gino has won numerous awards for her teaching, including the Harvard Business School Faculty Award by Harvard Business School's MBA class of 2015 for her research. She's also been awarded the 2013 Cummings Scholarly Achievement Award from the Academy of Management, Organization, and Behavior Division. Her studies have been featured in The Economist, The New York Times, Newsweek, Scientific American, Psychology Today, The Wall Street Journal, and her work has been discussed on National Public Radio and CBS Radio. She is the Tandem Family Professor of Business Administration at Harvard and also the author, most recently, of Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules in Work and Life. And today's episode is brought to you by Leader. If you haven't yet checked out Leader, I'd love for you to do so. I mean, The Great Resignation probably has taken a toll on your team. And you know, the data is telling us that 50% of people either have or will be leaving their job for another job in the next 12 months. So they're looking for workplaces where they can be engaged and grow every day. So if you think you're through this, you're probably not. And you've also got new hires, right? So how do you keep them? Well, Harvard Business Review, speaking of Harvard, says that 70% of the reason people leave a job is because of their relationship with their manager. So that puts a lot of the spotlight on the one-on-one meetings you have with your direct reports. Leader believes that the one-on-one meeting is the most powerful leadership development tool a manager has. And that's why Leader has built a platform to help you lead effective one-on-one meetings, develop leaders at every level of your organization, and engage and grow every person on your team. 500 churches and businesses are already using Leader. And if you want to request your demo today, go to leader, L-E-A-D-R, no second D, dot com. That's leader.com. And use the promo code Cary, my name, C-A-R-E-Y. You'll get 20% off your first year of their people development software. That's leader.com, promo code Cary, and you get 20% off. And what if you could have an amazing website and social media managed by any member of your team in minutes each week? Sounds like a pipe dream, right? Well, I got good news. It's not. Any team member can do it with Creativo, the all-in-one creative outreach platform. With Creativo, you look amazing online with a great website and great social. You save time by managing your social media and your website in minutes, and you save money Through an affordable price. You can also utilize cross platform management in iPhone, Android, and desktop with the same experience. Creativo is great for churches, nonprofits, and schools. Also, entrepreneurs, you can use it to manage your social media in minutes each week. For an amazing website and easy social media management in 2022, check out the all in one Creativo platform. And for a limited time, Listeners of this podcast can receive a Lifetime Founders Discount simply by doing this. Go to creativo, C-R-E-A-T-I-V-O dot slash C-A-R-E-Y. That's creativo.org slash You get a Lifetime Founders Discount. And now, my fascinating conversation with Francesca Gino. Francesca, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's a joy. So one of my favorite trips of all time was to Italy. We went just before the pandemic. Uh, What a beautiful, beautiful country. My wife, my family and I, we fell in love. Um, You were born there. Uh, What part exactly of Italy?
1: I was born in the north, in the mountains, a very small Uh, town, uh, right close to the Dolomites.
0: Okay, great. Well, we were in Tuscany and Rome and uh, it was stunning. And we've been in Mont Blanc too, which is almost in Italy, right? Mm -hmm. Was that near where you were or you're closer to Switzerland?
1: Uh, Closer to Austria, actually. Austria, okay, so on the east. Yeah, yeah, I haven't been back in two years, so I feel like now every time somebody mentioned Italy, I have this nostalgic feeling (laughs) everything is beautiful, things are delicious over there, so Yeah.
0: Well, you're a professor at Harvard. You've, you've got a huge impact on American thinking and global thinking. But I'm always interested, like Simon Sinek was born in England, and I asked him this question. I'm just curious as to whether your experiences in Italy, uh, how have they helped you see the world, shape the world maybe differently than most people listening in America, which is most of this audience? I'm just curious how that global perspective impacts your leadership and thinking.
1: I think that what that has done for me, or at least I hope, is giving me a little bit more patience in light of differences that I see. I've come to appreciate good and bad of every culture. And so I feel like, especially when working across boundaries or with people who come from a different perspective, to have that more patience and curiosity of exploring why they have the opinion that they have or the perspective that they have uh, rather than judging it up front as difference and so dismiss it. Though, as I'm saying this, I think that my husband who's American would disagree uh, that sometimes <laughs> I could exhibit more patience for when his thoughts are different.
0: It is interesting, you know, because when we were in Italy, I think for two weeks and you... You you fall in love with the country. Anybody who's been to Italy, I hear the same thing. It's one of their all-time favorites. But it's true. When you grow up there, you see the shadow side too. Like, mm-hmm. I remember there was a time we we rented this beautiful farmhouse with my wider family in Tuscany. One day, my brother and Lara standing there by a pool, we're in this 100-year-old farmhouse. We're out looking over the mountains and the vineyards and everything. And he goes, oh... I don't think I'd ever get tired of this view. And I said, oh, at some point you'd get used to it here. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point, you start to notice the cracks in the sidewalk and this thing. But that is true about our cultures, right? And we often have idealized views of things. So I'm sure that helps. You have literally just this weekend before we recorded it, latest issue of HBR, which I'm a longtime subscriber to, uh, you've got the cover story on managing a polarized workforce. I don't think anyone knows what you're talking about. Nobody is leading a polarized workforce, but you and your colleague wrote this article. Um I'd love to start here. You identify some myths that are associated with conflict. What do what do people get wrong about conflict, Francesca?
1: One of the I'll talk first about the motivation if you don't mind, but we yeah, were we were very much inspired by the fact that organizations are becoming more diverse. In fact, I don't know about you, but I'm often talking to leaders who say, we understand the value of diversity. But what often they miss is that by bringing in more diversity, you're likely to have more disagreement because people are going to have different ways of tackling problems, of thinking about uh, solutions. And one important myth is that when we think about conflict, all sorts of negative emotions come to mind. We think about those difficult disagreements, or those moments where we somehow damaged a relationship or something said something that hurt other people. And so we have that view of conflict as a negative thing. And what we wanted to say, or one of the things that we wanted to offer, is that conflict is actually not as negative. As we expect it to be. And so when you compare the expectation of a conflict with the feelings and the experience of it, you see a gap. And so part of entering disagreements more willingly is realized that is not as bad as we expect it to be. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that leaders are grappling with, at least the leaders I talk to, is. In some cases, and you've probably seen this at Harvard as well, you've worked with people for years and you thought, oh, this is a relatively normal, sane person. And then the pandemic hits. and next thing you know, there's some conspiracy theory or they have this view on a subject either from the the progressive left or the radical right. And you're like, where did this come from? Like, I thought you were a normal person. And so there tends to be a lot of... um, Well, polarization along those lines, too. You probably have seen that in education as well, have you?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I think, as you said, the pandemic has made that worse. I have a theory, but it's untested. My theory is that throughout the pandemic, a lot of this happened in the economy, in the world more generally, is outside of our control. And so when we engage with people in a conversation or in a discussion or in the classroom, we have a way of exerting control by expressing our opinions very strongly. And because of the lack of control, our patience has become, I think uh, the level is, is lower, or at least that's what I've noticed in my interactions with a lot of people colleagues the students, leaders across organization and it's understandable it's been uh, two years or more that have been quite hard for a lot of people
0: That's a really interesting theory. Do you think there's any way of testing that because I'm'm <laughs> I'm, I'm following the breadcrumbs this is I think you're onto something.
1: Yeah, so definitely there are pieces of it that can be tested. This idea of what do we do when we feel a lack of control and this desire to uh, focus on things that give us the control. like So you can break it down in pieces and test it. And then I've been looking for data that organizations out there have been tracking on the sense of patience and this sense of uh, thirst for control. And so to the extent that there are questions in engagement surveys that get at those dimensions, you could imagine looking at it historically over the last two or three or even four or five years.
0: Well, I, I think that's worth some research because, you know, I have an amateur theory too. I have lots of theories, untested, unproven, and likely faulty uh, but it was interesting. I think I'll go there. Yeah, so I, I live north of Toronto and the Canadian trucker phenomena became a global thing and I stayed out of it. I just like, I'm not going to go there. I don't I don't want to get connected with elements that seem to be, it seemed to be changing every day. But what I noticed is that the people on my social feeds who got very, very loud and very vocal around it in support of the truckers, if I had to, and I tested this with a few friends, if I had to, delineate, okay, what is driving this? Because I'm a student of human behavior. So I'm going to Mm -hmm. test this with a researcher and you.
1: Absolutely. I thought
0: often they tend to be unvaccinated. I'm fully vaxxed for the record, but they tended to be unvaccinated. They probably felt marginalized. They probably felt unheard by a government that had very, very strong opinions. And I'm not here 100% lining up with the Canadian government either, but had very strong opinions on issues. And this felt like their moment because it was supposed to be about one thing when the truckers left the West, but by the time they got to Ottawa, it was about 72 other things and everybody just kind of put their, their emotions and their causes and their gripes on it. And it almost felt like for a moment we can control the agenda. Now that could be completely mistaken. And then it dissolved, um, not quite as quickly as it came, but fairly quickly. Any thoughts on that? Is that what we do as human beings? like I'm I'm out of control so I'm looking for something I feel like I can control, including the narrative on what reporting is accurate and what isn't?
1: That is uh, something that we do know from research. There are some really old anthropological studies looking at communities of uh, fishers. Uh, fishermen. And what these studies uh, find is that in moments where the waters are really uh, difficult uh, because of weather or there are torrentious waters, that these fishermen very naturally started engaging in rituals that allow for them to feel a little bit of control. And so similarly, even outside of that context, what we know is that Feeling in control is an important drive for a lot of people, for many of us as human beings. And so when we lose that control because of uncertainty, we try to regain it um, in simple ways, sometimes through rituals or building routine that, in a sense, calm us down. Uh, I often make the joke of if you're crossing the street and there is that button that you can press in order for the light to turn green and... Even when you tell people that those buttons don't work, we still press them because we want to have that sense that we're controlling. Seven
0: times.
1: (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. So yeah, we want to have that sense of controls, especially when things are uncertain.
0: So maybe I'm taking this out of context because it was a few Mm -hmm. months ago that I created the notes for this interview, but I have in my notes, this is a quote from you, rebels don't create trouble trouble creates rebels. That's fascinating. Are we, is this what you mean by that? Like, could that be a moment where trouble created rebels or rebels? What do you mean by that?
1: So what I mean by that is that troubles in the sense of situations that we've not seen before Mm -hmm. call for creativity. They call for different ways of thinking. And in my work, what I found is that the people who usually... Uh, rise up to the occasions are people I call rebels. So so these are not the contrarians or the troublemakers. They're people who are trying to drive constructive, positive change by looking at things a little bit differently. Hmm. Many of us go through life just sitting with what's comfortable and familiar. We'd get used to our routines, to things that we control. And these rebels instead come in with a lot of curiosity. They say, but why do we do things this way? And they try to reinvent, uh, when possible, existing ways of of being. I'll give you a concrete example, which is um, the example of a person who truly inspired me because one of his mottos is, traditions exist to be rebuilt. This is a Mm. three Michelin star uh, chef. And he is the owner of a restaurant called Osteria Francescana in Modena, Italy. And to me, what he did was remarkable because he went to a context, traditional Italian dishes, and reinvented them. So he has a very innovative spin on traditional Italian dishes. And we were talking about the Italians. The Italians are uh-huh. very, very clear that when it comes to rules for cooking, we follow them. And we cherish traditions, especially when they are about grandmother's recipes that have been passed on for centuries. And he went to that context with a lot of curiosity, saying, Why is it that we cook the dish that way? Maybe there is a better way. And so it was quite innovative and he created a positive change.
0: Well, you know, there are uh, moving, there's destructive rebellion. And then there's mm-hmm. constructive rebellion, if I can frame it that way. And in more of a normal lens of leadership, it's so funny because as we're recording this interview, my team is launching something that we're called we're calling uh, the Art of Leadership Academy. And what we did was completely disrupted our business model. About six months ago, we went off on retreat together. We looked at the future of the company and said, the model that got us here will not serve leaders into the future, and we blew it to smithereens. And I was very, very nervous. But I was thinking today, as I'm reflecting, it's been very, very successful beyond our expectation that most of the breakthroughs I've had in leadership over the last 25 years have been the result of looking at the mission, but blowing up the model. Is that what you see where you're like, okay, you know, the results you're you're perfectly created to get the results you're currently getting. Um you're looking for that kind of rebellion that kind of challenge of the status quo in the workplace among leaders?
1: Absolutely. And what I think is very important in staying with constructive rebelliousness rather than being destructive is this idea of being 100% clear on the mission. The example that you made me think of, which is an example I love, is from a very different context, a context that is highly bureaucratic. Very hierarchical. And if anything, the culture is don't rock the boat. So this is a group in the Air Force here in the United States. And a new leader came in a few years ago and said, look, if we want to stay true to the mission, which is be comeback ready for us, we need to do things differently. We need to have a different approach to the work that we do. We need innovative ideas. We need to rethink, in your own words, the model, the operating model. And they truly blew that up. And if you look at the number of innovations that came out of the group in the last few years, it's pretty impressive. They now do contracting like the private sector rather than the public one, or pilots who fly pipelines who knew nothing about software and app development, developed apps to help with safety on flight. And all came down to one person who was very clear on the mission, but then defined the boundaries Everything that we do is within regulations and created a space for people to run with feeling empowered and feeling that they had that freedom.
0: So this is is really interesting because you talked in your last TED Talk about curiosity. You talk about rebel talent and studying rebellion. What a lot of leaders listening to this podcast are struggling with, and I'd love some free consulting if you're up for it. Absolutely. is, uh, you know, we talked about the church a little bit before we got started, but a lot of churches have been fighting a a 20-year attendance slide in their mm-hmm. churches. The pandemic only made that worse. There's a handful of churches, uh, very small digits that are growing, um, but the vast majority now are a shadow of even what they were three years ago. And what do we do? We just keep opening the doors on Sunday, hoping hoping for different results. Um when you look at a case like that and these are you know faithful people good people they love God they love their community but they're just seeing diminishing returns and the model of the way we do church hasn't been disrupted mm-hmm. internally for years been disrupted by culture by secularism by post-Christianity by all of these things but not by ourselves we do a variation of what we did in 2003 or 1993 hoping it's going to work better next Sunday. What what advice, if you were consulting with church leaders, going in to meet their governing board, their teams, where would you start with them?
1: I would probably ask a lot of questions about what brings the people to church in the first place. And from their standpoint, as the leaders of the church, what are they trying to accomplish when they open the doors on Sundays? and see whether there is a way to fill the interest of people who would like to come to church, but in a different way. So you made me think about growing up in Italy and going to church every Sundays and loving what I learned from it. But as a child, for instance, thinking that maybe the hour and a half was too long. And so could you think of it as something that is shorter Or could you think of it as more uh, rather than I'm here to listen primarily, it's more interactive? How is it that, as you said, that you can blow up the model in a way that allows for people to engage with it differently, creating more space for a dialogue? So I think I would be asking a lot of questions about why do people come to church and what it is that you're trying to achieve in having them there? And is there a different model that can serve those interests? And what are the elements that we always thought of as critical to achieve those goals? And can we move or shape them in a different way, length of the time that we are together or more participatory versus versus not?
0: Well, if this is going too far, you can reject the question and we can move on to other things or we can edit it out. But about a year ago, Adam and Grant and I had a fascinating podcast conversation. I'm sure you know Adam. Um, And, you know, we talked about what was wrong with the church. And Simon Sinek and I had a very similar conversation. But I would love to know, just from your perspective, I don't know whether you're actively involved in church or not, but you've got a background. Like, Mm -hmm. what would interest you in the church these days? Like, what would be some things that you would say, oh, if you did this, I might be interested or more interested or lean in. Or maybe there's no good answer to that question.
1: Mm -hmm. So, to me, starting the conversation as you're doing it now, uh, it's interesting that I was in a conversation recently with a CEO of a large international company and he was referring to what different communities in the way we grew up were good for. And so Mm -hmm. we had education as and being in school as a community that helps you figure out what's uh, good or bad or what's fair or not. And then you had church really being a community where you understand what's moral or what's Mm -hmm. not. So good and bad in a different uh, way. And then your family being the one that truly instilled the type of values, the good and bad you want to live by. And now the education is different. A lot of people don't go to church. We have parents that are often both working. Clearly I have that in my own family with four children. And so it's interesting to think about where do people go to grab elements of their own identity and existence and way of being in the world that are so important. And so I do think that I would go back to in the way that they were intended when a lot of people were going to church regularly. What was the why? What is it that this community was trying to create for me? And again, I can think back to my parents sort of took me to church. It was a thing that you had to do and I didn't have a choice over But in Reflecting Back, one of the things that truly did for me is creating this moment of peace and reflection. Whether I was listening during Mass or not, I was there to think deeply, ask deep questions about myself as an individual, how I show up for work, feeling that uh, more grace was needed or more compassion was needed. And I do wonder where those moments of reflections are in today's environment, because we are so pressed with going from one thing to the other, we're never disconnected given all the ways of being connected that we have available to us. Where do those moments of reflections come in? And so, I, I don't know if that was the same no, for you. That's but that's, that's
0: super helpful. And again, you know, if you're willing for one more question on this. You know, I think what happened, the difference between my childhood, your childhood is, yeah, we didn't have much of a choice. It was cultural, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of people have drifted away, and what arose is the Internet. There's information Mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, You can do Buddhist meditation on an app now. A lot of people are finding spirituality without finding Jesus or God Mm -hmm. or, you know, the way Christianity would define who God is. And so what they're doing now is they are finding that on their own or with a group of friends or individually. And so it's left a lot of church leaders. Like I think the false assumption is that America is completely atheistic. They're not. There's a lot of agnostics. There's a small percentage of atheists. And there's a lot of people who would be spiritual but would say, but I'm not necessarily Christian and I don't know what you could offer me. I don't know whether you have any other thoughts on that, Francesca, but it's just a problem a lot of our... Leaders listening and the business leaders are usually involved in church in this podcast. We're trying to solve it. And I just love to get different takes on that. Any other thoughts before we move on?
1: Yeah, what I would add that, again, is very personal. But when I think about memories from now, uh, almost, no, it is over 30 years ago, is this uh, moment of reflections, but within a community. Uh, There was that moment in the mass where you're asked to turn to your neighbors and you're making peace. And all that was going through my head when you're doing that and you're shaking hands with people who you don't necessarily interact with on a day-to-day basis. That is powerful. And so I do love meditation efforts. I do love finding moments of reflections in our busy lives in different ways, but it seems like one of the pieces that we're missing by doing that is this moment of connection where it's reflections within a community. How do we recreate that and that physical presence of share the silence? I think I I, I just love that. I have very strong memories of what that did to me. And again, it could be very different for other people, but it's um, being in the common moment of of reflections. I think that that's so powerful.
0: You know, the older I've gotten, and I'm not leading a church day-to-day anymore, but, you know, church has got very loud, uh, big band and everything, and almost no, quote, dead air. Mm. But I think what I'm sensing in the culture is you're right. If we're an echo of the culture, that's one thing. If we're an alternative to it, creating space. Trading sometimes for silence and prayer. And then community. I don't know. I think a lot of leaders are kind of realizing we talk about community, but I don't know whether we do it well Mm. because you sit there with, you know, 50 to 5,000 other randomly assembled people and you don't really connect. You just kind of all eyes front and pay attention to the stage and then go to your cars and back to your house. So I love what you're saying because I feel like it is upholding part of the mission, but also challenging the model. Very helpful. Thanks. Thanks for being willing to go.
1: <laughs> you're very I appreciate you're welcome. it.
0: Yeah, we got lots to think about. So let's talk about that. You know, the other thing you said, and this is a good segue into your HBR article, which I do want to get to, is you talked about, you know, the church being a place where you would interact with people that you normally wouldn't interact with. And that's what you kind of notice in an Italian village anyway. A small one is like, you know, you know the people who sell you meat and who sell you vegetables and you're in a village and you interact with people. Kind of lost that in American you know, and Western suburban culture where you kind of interact with your family and the people you choose. But a church at the best of times and a workplace is also similar, has kind of everybody from your neighborhood. They have wealthy and poor. They've got um, people who vote on different sides of the aisle. They've got uh, people with very different perspectives. And that leads into the polarization question. So I'd love for you, now that we're getting back finally to the HBR article, your motivation was a diverse workplace can create challenges, but we also have political opinions that have infused the mm-hmm. debate. You've got several myths about what we get wrong about conflict. So what do we what do we get wrong about conflict?
1: So one uh, thing that we get wrong is our emotional experience going through the conflict. So there I would say that we have evidence that shows that the experience is not as negative as we expect it to be. We also don't quite understand what it means to disagree with a person who thinks differently from us. We often look at people we disagree with and we're quick to say, oh, they're not their facts are wrong, or they're not as competent as we are. And again, that type of thinking is misplaced. The same issue, the same situations get interpreted very differently based on a lot of our experiences. In fact, I would say that it's hard to find one thing that we all are going to see in exactly the same way because We grew up in different ways. There are different Mm -hmm. people who influenced us uh, in our youth, but also as adults. And so our own experiences are colored by our past in a way that we often don't appreciate, especially when there is disagreement. So our article is an invitation to look at these common misconceptions differently, but also not to shy away from difficult conversations and disagreements, but truly to embrace them with more of an open mind.
0: Yeah, so myth number one hit me between the eyes because I felt like it was a really good diagnosis for what we see, which is simply people who disagree with us do so because they are uninformed or unintelligent. And I think we've all probably felt that way. First of all, why do we do that? And secondly, why is that a myth?
1: So human nature is tricky. (laughs) And what human nature uh, does for us is that once we have a view or we have an opinion or we have a decision that we want to make or we have a preference— we are very quick to recruit every single piece of information that suggests that that opinion, that way of thinking is correct. And so we look at everything that is different as something to reject simply because of that inconsistency. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like fighting these common myths and embracing conflicts with more of an open mind requires us to move away from what is an instinctual reaction, if you will, to a learned behavior. So if we just are left to our own devices, our human nature brings us into places that are not that helpful when it comes to creating dialogue or Mm -hmm. having conversations across difference.
0: Yeah, so you know, myth number two was also reading my mail, too, because I would agree that it was true, but you're saying it's a myth, which is disagreement makes people defensive. And I want to push back a little bit because I think we've all had that Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner or the conversation at work where we tried to share an opinion and they got defensive and then we got defensive, but you're saying that's a myth.
1: Mm-hmm, I suggesting that based on the research that my colleagues and I conducted, if we approach the disagreement differently, we're not going to wow. be met with resistance or with defense of it. Like you, I have plenty of situations, both <laughs> from my professional and personal life, where I come in and I see that your view is different from mine. And especially when I feel very strong about my convictions, I truly Roll up my sleeves and treat this opportunity as a way to show you how wrong you are and how correct I am. And so with that mode of approaching disagreements, I'm just going to put you on the defensive. Hmm. But again, there is a, a different alternative approach that can lead to much more helpful debates and conversations rather than creating problems or very heated disagreements.
0: So give us some advice, because I love Mm -hmm. the way the article landed where you said this doesn't have to be this way. Because I think the other thing, and this is myth number three, three, is you've got to avoid conflict, that if you Mm -hmm. go there, it's a bad thing. And I think a lot of Christians in particular are guilty of that. It's like, I'm just going to have my private opinions. I'm not going to deal with it. But you've got a different way of engaging conflict. So, um, what what are some keys to having a better conversation, even when you will not agree?
1: Yeah. So it's using receptivity, but also I would say, and this is a language that comes from work on crucial conversations, is choosing the third option. So I think that most of us grew up with this idea that either in tough moment, difficult conversation, disagreement, either you're honest. Or you're trying your best to save the relationship or nurture the relationship. So um, if my husband says something that I disagree with or that is hurtful, I can point that out but make him feel bad or I can just not make a note of it. And so I choose not to be honest. But the third option is that you address the issue honestly, but also being respectful. We don't do that well. All of a sudden, no. in an emotionally charged <laughs> environment, we just spit it out uh, in ways that shows anger when uh, anger might not be necessarily needed. In terms of strategy, I'm going to give you a, a simple one that I think allows us to show more receptiveness during moments of disagreements. Uh, there is work of a colleague at the school um, there are, at Chicago, at Booth, They summarized it by saying thank you because. So imagine you and I are having a disagreement and once it's my turn to come in, I need to say something equivalent to thank you because. So the thank you Mm. showing appreciation for a perspective that is different from my own. I'm not necessarily agreeing with it, but I appreciate the fact that a difference in opinion exists. The because forces me to listen. Again, that is not instantential. When we are in a moment of disagreement, I close my ears, <laughs> I shut them down because I get ready to speak and suggest my point of view. And so these are, you can use that language or different language, but showing appreciation for a perspective that is different, showing that I'm listening and I'm learning something from you and then express my own view with a bit of edging, so rather than saying, I'm sure that this is the correct way of looking at the situation, you say one perspective on the issue is X.
0: You know, the thank you because is very difficult because I can imagine me saying, thank you for sharing that, Francesca. I do not agree, which just about undoes the thank you, right? Doesn't it? In that moment, like <laughs> all the water is out of the bathtub.
1: Uh, absolutely. Yes, has to be genuine. And right. the because is important, right? Because you took the effort of listening to what I have to say such that you can play back something that stood out to you that you didn't know prior to listening.
0: Right. So I could say thank you so much for sharing that because I, I didn't know that blank, mm-hmm. blank, 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 blank. I didn't realize that that's what you're talking about. That's right? exactly
1: right. Yeah, beautiful. That is
0: incredibly disarming to the other person.
1: That's exactly right. And also it changes your emotional posture. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to come in and again, be ready in this mode of, I'm going to show you how wrong you are. <laughs> if that is the starting point. It really sort of calms you down and say, okay, I appreciate this view. And I recognize that it might seem forceful, but I think we need that trigger to calm us down, be in the moment, truly listen to understand your position rather than getting ready to respond. And once we show up with more receptiveness, it's very contagious. It's hard for the other person now to be on the defensive or to show anger towards us.
0: I'm gonna have to take a good notes on that one. Thank you, because I haven't heard that before. And then you also say hedging your mm-hmm. attitude. What, what do you mean by that? Would, like you're, you're saying qualify it a little bit?
1: Yeah, it's showing less certainty in your okay. position. So you might say, oh, I'm 100% sure that this is the right way to go. You say one perspective on how we can proceed is. And so you're baking a little bit of uncertainty into your statement in a way that open up the conversation for more receptivity.
0: You uh, also underlined something I learned back in law school when I read Getting to Yes. Your mm-hmm. colleagues, William Fisher, or is it uh, Roger Fisher and William Yuri wrote about focusing on the task, not the person. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? That has become, on my good days, not on my bad days, but on my good days, I will focus on the issue, not the person. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like even though that idea has been out there for decades, it is so rarely Practice. Why is that important?
1: It's very important because you're keeping the disagreements around the work to be done or the task to be accomplished or the decisions to be made rather than making it personal. And when things become personal, it's very hard to not react with very strong emotions. And let's just be honest, we all have those moments where it's slippery. We're first starting from the task, and then it becomes, but you're always the person who brings in information at the last minute. And so it becomes personal in a way that is detrimental to the relationship, but also to the ability of resolving the conflict. What we find in our research is that when we are receptive, so when we have this language that allows us uh, to edge our claim, to state things in positive terms, show appreciation, the conflicts get resolved much more quickly. Also, trust get nurtured. So I think that that is important in relationship. And finally, that if our intention was to convince the other side of our view, we are more likely to be persuasive if we are receptive rather than not.
0: You also say something that is very difficult. I'm going to suggest it's even harder for people of faith. And again, Mm -hmm. Adam Grant and I had a good conversation around this, so we'll link to this in the show notes. But you say, teach people to be Mm open-minded. And I think a lot of us, naturally, we close our minds. We're like, I just got to say this louder. I got to be more emphatic. I've got to leave no room for doubt or interpretation. But you're saying that's going to have the opposite impact. And we're gonna have Chris Bale from um, Duke on the podcast. He wrote uh, a great book called Breaking the Social Media Prism, which really challenged a lot of my assumptions. So how, how do you remain open-minded? And then the second is, how do you ma- maintain an open-mindedness without sacrificing your core convictions?
1: Mm-hmm. I'll give you the same answer to both questions. And okay. this is a personal strategy, but it's backed up by research evidence. What I found most helpful is embracing a mantra that came from doing improv comedy classes with my husband and spending a lot of time analyzing what goes on in improv comedy theaters. And one of the philosophy they live by is that curiosity and judgment can't coexist. Mm-hmm. Now, I find that really powerful as a way of thinking and being in the world because especially when there is a different opinion, or a different idea, or a different perspective, especially when I feel super strongly about my convictions or beliefs or preferences, we go into judgment mode. I hear Definitely. your different opinions. I it's like, that's stupid, or that's totally <laughs> not reasonable. But if we start from a point of curiosity, then The unfolding of that moment is very different. I say, why is it that a person as smart as he is thinks so differently about this issue? I get curious, I ask questions, I want to learn. And so when we enter even the most difficult disagreements with that perspective of curiosity, of wanting to learn, we fare so much better. So that's a principle that I try to stand by and I feel it that is that, Um, urge or this instinct when you feel that the judgment is kicking in and say, oh, why is it that his view is so different? That I think is what has helped me stay more open-minded.
0: That's really good advice. And, you know, one of my my goals I have actually written down in my prayer journal is I'm praying to be more open-minded. And you would think that that would be the opposite of faith. But what I find is, that it is in some strange way, it actually deepens my faith. I don't know how that's working, but it nuances it in a way that it seems to hopefully keep getting healthier. Do you think that's what can happen if you are open-minded? Or do you, do you become so open-minded that you just end up like a wash on the ocean, kind of adrift?
1: Mm-hmm. What are your
0: thoughts on that?
1: It's interesting. I, I feel like the two things are orthogonal in the following way, that you can stay open-minded and acknowledge that there are different perspectives, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with them, but you're open to the possibility of giving them proper consideration, of learning about them, of rather than judging them from the start, getting curious about them. And so I can think of situations where I in fact consider all sorts of views on an issue, but I stayed with what I believed was the right way of proceeding from the start, but I can also think of situations where the very fact that I was considering different views and perspectives informed my thinking in a different way.
0: Do you want to go through the little HERE um, acronym that you call it, how to signal receptiveness? I found that also really, really helpful. And we're trying to make this really practical, leaders, just so that you have a framework you can walk into your next horrible conversation with, because I know it's probably minutes away.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. the HERE stands for add your claims. So rather than coming in with this certainty, use wording that is more like uh, some people tend to think or one perspective on an issue is X. The E stands for emphasize agreement or a point of common ground. It's helpful to focus our attention on something where we seem to see eye to eye. It could be that we acknowledge that we both really care about the cause or that we both really care about making progress on the decision. The A is to acknowledge other perspectives. So we go back to this idea of appreciating the fact that there are different ways of looking at an issue. So showing that you understand, uh, replaying back what I think you're saying or you're suggesting is why, that is a good way of acknowledging the other's perspective. And finally, the R in here is for reframing in positive terms. So I think it's really good when, or it would be so wonderful if, and especially during conflict, we tend to talk a lot in negative terms. And so this positivity is quite, quite helpful. These are elements that allow us to signal receptiveness in conflict.
0: It's good to know. So hedge your claims, emphasize agreement, acknowledge other perspectives, reframe in positive terms. We will link to this article in the show notes, I think I subscribe, but I think you can get one or two free articles a month. Uh, And so hopefully that link will work for you and subscribers, you'll be able to see it as well. So uh, in the time we have left, I want to talk about what you have devoted your work to because this is a reset period for just about everybody. We're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, Our staff has changed. The church has changed. Our business has changed. The culture has changed. The model has changed. And it feels like we're retooling for a very uncertain unstable era. And as we record this, we now have war in Europe. You know, I don't know where that'll be by the time this hits air, but you have talked, you've spent a lot of your career just working on decision-making and talent, particularly rebel talent. Do you want to talk about decision-making in an uncertain time? What are some of the, the lessons you've learned about how to make decisions when you really can't see ahead?
1: hmm One of the things that I've learned that is truly important that the time we are in actually offers is making sure that we broaden our perspectives about what's possible. And so surrounding ourselves with people who not necessarily look at situation the same way we do is incredibly, incredibly helpful. Mm. In the book, I talk about... uh, leader who I thought was quite fascinating on this front, and uh, his name became quite famous across the world because of something that he did in a situation of emergency back in 2009. And this is Captain Sally Salenberger mm. at a time where, on a cold evening in 2009, ended up ditching a plane with 155 passengers in the Hudson River. And I learned about his story by reading the transcript of the conversation as it was happening during that moment. He had 208 seconds to make a decision. That I think is the definition of having very little (sighs) time. But despite the fact that he was such under great pressure, rather than going into tunnel vision, so eliminating all options, going to the most obvious answer, he kept broadening his views bringing in different perspectives from the air traffic controller, from the first officer, considering all sorts of alternatives, asking what could I do rather than what should I do? And he came up with a rather ingenious solution that saved 155 passengers. And what I loved is that when I had the chance to interview him, I discovered that he was clearly an expert by the time the accident happened, and yet he had... Build this habit for yourself such that every time you walked into the cockpit, it would ask the question, what do I stand to learn today? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That really changes how we think about decisions because it focuses your attention on the fact that there is always something to learn from others, from the situations. We need that way of being in the world, especially right now that we're facing all sorts of complex problems. So I think a lot about the benefit of broadening perspectives and walking through life, gaining experience, but holding on to my humility so that I can keep broadening the perspective rather than going to these strong answers that I think experience often dictates. Couple
0: of quick follow-ups. Which book did you reference that you write? Which book is that in of yours?
1: So I use this example in Rebel Talent.
0: Rebel Talent. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Also, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, uh, it, it, it starred Tom Hanks. Do you remember the name of that movie? I saw it a few years ago. I do not. Uh, I movie. do
1: not. Is it The Miracle no. on the Hudson? Don't remember. Probably. Okay. Or we'll what look what it you? up. It's the one with
0: Tom Hanks. And it was really surprising to me, I don't want to spoiler alert, like mute out if you don't want to hear this, but he was in significant trouble afterwards Mm -hmm. for what he did, even though he saved every life, because it was so unconventional. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, it's got a pretty powerful ending to that movie, but it's, it's a good case study in leadership. On that note, you know, we talked about breaking a model or at least rethinking it. You know, you seem as a professor to draw inspiration and research from a wide variety of sources. Do you think it's important for those of us, you know, let's say you're in small business and you're selling insurance and you need a breakthrough, or you're a restaurateur or a gym owner, or, you know, someone who's been impacted by the pandemic, or you're a church leader going every year we get diminishing returns. How often I find breakthroughs come when you study other fields and in other industries. How I call that cross disciplinary learning. I don't know whether that's the right term or not. Is that a factor, or how important is that a factor in changing your creative thinking to solve the problem you're facing?
1: Absolutely. And we can call it, I like across disciplines or cross pollination, or even going back to the idea of having different experiences from a cultural standpoint because you lived abroad. Uh, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that when we have the depth uh, of experiences, getting to know other cultures or getting to know other contexts, that that builds the curiosity muscle in a way that is beneficial to our ability to solve complex problems, but also show more creativity in how we solve them. So, yes,
0: I'm just looking at my list of questions, very few of which we've gotten to, but um, you you talk about, uh, like a lot of people are retooling with people too. They mm-hmm. realize, okay, we lost some people, we hired some people, but we also know that there's a very different skill set probably needed for the future. I'm going to be picking up some key players, hopefully over the next year or two. So I took your rebel assessment a few months ago. You outlined five <laughs> kinds of rebels, the guard, the traveler, Ah, uh, the pirate and the climber. I was a little surprised to discover that I'm a pirate. Can you walk us through the different types and then uh, what they involve, and help me understand what kind of problem I'm creating? In being I think a pirate?
1: that you are a very, very good type. Let me explain why pirates. Okay. So, pirates, as I talk about in Rebel Talent were quite misunderstood for what they were able to do on their ships. There are two things that, from talking to a lot of historians, studying as much as I could about pirates, stood out to me as really interesting. The first one is that at a time where it was about 200 years before slavery ended in the United States, Mm. they were the most diverse organization on the planet. They were getting people to be part of the crew, not because of race or gender, but because of their commitment to the mission. So just for that, I think they deserve quite a bit of points. But second, and I think this is interesting in light of what we're talking about and the implications for leadership, the crew had a lot of power. The crew was in charge of choosing the captain but also the crew could remove the captain from their position if the captain was not focused on making their lives better, making sure that people were thriving on the ship. So think about that for a moment. Uh I think that a lot of leaders think of their power as coming from the position that they have in the organization, the formal authority the captains on this ship were going through their life quite differently, thinking about influence as something that they had to earn, rather than be given by the position. Think about trust as something that they had to earn. And so they raised this question of what will life be in our leadership if we went through it saying every single day, Am I the captain that my crew would choose as his leader today? I think that that re your attention. That's powerful. It centers your attention on what am I actually doing to create the condition for my crew to thrive? I've come accustomed to asking that question. It's very humbling because often I arrive it at is. the end of the day and say, today, not today, did not do a good job. <laughs> but at least you try a little harder the day after. And so the fact that you came out as a pirate is actually suggestive of the fact that you have a lot of curiosity in the way you approach the work, that you tend to show up in the work that you do as the real you, that you are a person who tends to take a broad perspective on problems. So I'm giving you thumbs up for your time. Oh,
0: that's good to know. Yeah, I'm I'm not trying to rob anybody. So a pirate brings curiosity, Brings a broad perspective, kind of looking for new shores. Anything else about a pirate that they bring?
1: Lots of authenticity and appreciation Mm. for diversity. What's novel Mm. doesn't scare pirates. They tend to embrace it.
0: That's a fun part of this podcast. I have guests on who, if they were on the same show, would probably fight with each other. And I'm okay having a conversation with both people. Like, that's okay with me. So, okay. So we're looking for pirates. When would you hire a pirate? What what do they do best to an organization?
1: Pirates are really good at bringing about change that is positive and constructive when others not necessarily see the need for change. So I would say it's 2022. We have been through a lot. It's time to rethinking how we approach work, this is the time for pirates to come in and help us rethink how we want to approach the work that we do.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, good. So what about the guard? What does the guard do?
1: The guards needs a little bit of of more uh, pirates in their blood, I would say. (laughs) So the guard is very good at keeping things stable rather than providing what's needed for adapting fast. And so for the guards out there, for people who take the test, I would say find a pirate, spend some time with them, uh, and embrace some of their way of being in the world because that is going to be very, very beneficial.
0: Is a guard very good at managing? In other words, I'll give you this department, it just needs to be kept stable. Is Mm -hmm. that the kind of person Mm -hmm. you would want as a guard? Yep. Okay. That's good. Uh, Traveler. What is a traveler?
1: So travelers are very good at embracing different perspectives. So in diverse environments that might, in fact, involve a lot of differences of opinions or conflicting views, having some travelers is quite helpful.
0: Okay. So they see different viewpoints. What about the climber?
1: The climber are really good in situations where you need a lot of straight talk and honesty.
0: Ah, okay. So, so why the metaphor climber?
1: So they are quite good at bringing out authenticity that is often missing. And so uh. the inspiration for that name came from thinking about reaching high levels of performance by being who you are, staying true to doing that type of uh, bringing out aspects that others not necessarily see.
0: Did I miss a type or are there four? There's I think four. I said five. There's four, okay. So there we go. But I, got I was it
1: curious, cry. given that yeah, you're a pirate, yeah. you might come up with a new one. <laughs>
0: Yeah, math was not my strong suit. So even in single digits, I struggle sometimes. Uh, My notes were defective. Okay, so that's good. It feels like this is an era for pirates, though. Mm -hmm. If you really want new thinking, you got to go find that. We will link to the Rebel Talent Assessment in the show notes. You can take that. I believe it was free, right? You can take that for free. Find out what you are. Run your team through it. Find out who you got, where you're deficient, which is good. Okay, anything else uh, as we think about the future and decision-making, what's ahead of us, what is your advice to leaders as we try to carve a new path?
1: I was struck by some recent surveys that I was looking at of hundreds of thousands of leaders across the globe. And the surveys were asking questions about what skills are needed. And this sense of adaptability, creativity, and curiosity, I think that these were the top three skills. But if you kept reading through the findings of the survey, what was also true is that most employees indicated that their leaders lacked these very skills. So I, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Uh, And so I find that often being adaptable, being curious, being um, clear on the need for change, that requires soft skills that might not be the one you keep your attention on because you're so focused on the technical skills. And I often say that the soft skills are really the hard stuff. And so to me, the survey was a reminder of how much more I can do in spreading the ideas on curiosity, on adaptability, on rebelliousness, and the pirates such that they're embraced more fully.
0: I kind of winced when you said a lot of senior leaders are not that, don't have those characteristics because you wouldn't believe the number of messages I get from people who are not the senior leader who is like, I'm on board, but my senior leader won't budge. But my boss is closed. But my, and there's something I think that comes when you sit at the top, if you want to call it that. And I've been the senior leader for almost 30 years in what I've led, but where you can easily just embrace the status quo because you kind of get to say it. If there is a senior leader listening who is the bottleneck to a breakthrough right now, who is not very creative, not very risk-taking, not very piratey, is that a skill that can be learned? Or is it time for new leadership? Or or what? what is your advice?
1: I think that these are skills that we can learn. Take curiosity, which is so important yeah. to this ability of seeing things differently part of the reason why I wanted to write the book is to say, we're born with it. I'm, as I said, the mom of four children. I'm in the land of (laughs) curiosity and constant questioning and experimenting. But as we grow older, we lose the ability to stay curious, but we can re-engage with it. But we need to keep asking questions, experimenting, focusing on what we're learning, uh, as we do that experimentation. And so it's like any of our muscles, if we don't exercise it, it goes into atrophy. And so with curiosity, we need to uh, exercise that muscle. So to me, one of the scary pieces of evidence that I collected with my colleagues is to see that the more experienced and expert and senior leaders are, the less curious they tend to be. (laughs) And so to me, it's a reminder of, we truly need to see things more like Captain Sully, where we gain experience and use it as a signal, not that we know it all, but that there is more to learn. We stay curious with humility about the possibility that we haven't figured it out, that there is more that can be discovered.
0: So there's a lot over the last hour that we covered that I think leaders can adapt very practically. But for somebody who's walking into a meeting and they're you kind of read their mail, you called them out, they're like, yep, I'm the roadblock, I'm not very creative, I'm that problem, that creativity bottleneck, I'm not a pirate. What are one or two things they could do in that meeting after they shut off this podcast or first thing tomorrow when they walk into the meeting to change their posture and to set a new direction? What's a really practical skill that they can do? And just in one meeting, do one or two things that changes the temperature. Any suggestions?
1: I'll turn it into two questions. The first of which I heard a while back, and I think it changed my posture. And the question is, ask yourself, what are you controlling that you need to let go? I think the question is very freeing, (laughs) Uh, but it changes your posture and your mindset. And the second is, what can you learn from others? Again, if I'm entering a meeting with that focus outward rather than inward, I think you're going to be more open to gather information and gather different perspective rather than staying focused on your own. So those are the two questions that, (laughs) I've come into the habit of asking myself often that have helped me open my mind to new situations and I think learn from others in a way that have benefited my ability to adapt and to change.
0: That's really good. And it sounds like there's a lot of uh, counseling sessions ahead for people who ask those questions. I don't know what you think, Francesca, but... um, I, there was an app. I swear this app existed. Maybe I dreamt it. It was years ago. but I'm. And, and feel free to tell me if you think I'm wrong, if I'm barking up the wrong tree. But I remember because I'm a natural, I'm a communicator, right? I was born communicating, lawyer, love court, preacher. I can dominate anybody. And one of my goals, we were talking about creating this podcast before we hit record, is, as I told you, if I don't talk a lot, it's a good episode. If I'm like, bah, 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 it's a bad episode because I didn't let you talk. But I swear there was an app, maybe it exists on the App Store today, if someone does, let us know, we'll put it in the show notes, that measures who is talking in a conversation. Uh And even the knowledge that that app was there, it would measure how much you talked, it would recognize your voice, versus how much everyone else talked. And I have been trying to make sure that I talk a minority of time in the meetings, if not somewhere between 10 and 20%. Mm -hmm. Can
1: that
0: help? Or is that an abdication of leadership?
1: I think that that is incredibly helpful. And in Mm -hmm. fact, there is a a principle that is used at Pixar Animation Studios, which is when they are in brainstorming meetings, they live by the statement that it's better for powerful people to enter a conversation than to start it. And what they mean by it is that if you're the leader of the group, the very things that you're going to say at the start is going to influence and shape the discussion rather than letting it flow in a way that could be quite beneficial.
0: Well, this has been a delight. I want to thank you so much. So we're going to link to everything we talked about in the show notes. Other episodes will also uh, link to your Rebel Talent Assessment, the Rebel Talent book, uh, the Harvard Business Review article that we spent quite a bit of time on, which I found so helpful. But if people want to find you online, do you have a website or obviously Harvard has got a profile page on you, but where can people go?
1: I have a lot of my information on francescagino.com and anybody who's interested in using Insights Ideas, I'm always up for a conversation. There is also a book website where listeners can find the Rebel Talent Test. That's
0: fantastic that you would make that offer. There's a lot of leaders who listen to this, so I hope they don't overwhelm you. But I really appreciate it when uh, when you said you'd be on the podcast. And thank you for your work. Thanks for your contribution. And thanks for building into leaders today.
1: It was such a great conversation. So thank you for having me.
0: Well, I hope that was helpful. I absolutely loved it and learned a lot. We've got show notes for you. You can find them over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 483. And we also have, uh, well, another episode Uh, coming up. We have got, I'm so excited for this. We just landed Ramit Sethi. I've been wanting to get him as a guest on this podcast for a long time. A lot of you know who he is. For those of you who don't, you're going to be excited. Oliver Berkman from 4,000 Weeks, a great book. We're also going to be talking to Dave Adamson, Andy Stanley, Susan Cain, and Voskamp. And next time, it's Levi Lusko. Here's an excerpt.
1: I thought I was having a heart attack at first. And I was like, I need you to pray for me right now. And it, it just gets worse and not better. I grabbed my Bible. I'm trying my Bible. All the words are spinning. And I'm like, I need to take a shower. So I go in the shower and I'm like trying to calm down, but getting more keyed up. And my next door neighbor is a police officer. And I kept thinking I need to go knock on the door and ask him to put me in handcuffs. Like that was what I, my, my most
0: coherent thought I could think because I thought I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm super excited to have you join us today. We want to thank our partners, Leader. We choose these guys very carefully, so please check them out. You can go to leader.com, L-E-A-D-R.com. Use the promo code CARRY to get 20% off your first year of their people development software. And also for an amazing website and easy social media management, you can check out the all-in-one Creativo platform brought to you by ProMedia Fire for a limited time. You get a lifetime founders discount when you go to Creativo, that's C-R-E-A-T-I-V-O dot org slash carry. Get your lifetime discount there. Well, if you like this episode and you are interested in leadership, you can get a lot more content. In fact, all of my content, an amazing new community over at the com you go there today, you'll get access to a growing library of premium on-demand courses. I do some live monthly coaching. It's hosted by me. Monthly staff training done for you for your team and a community of top-tier leaders. We're a couple of weeks into the launch of the Academy. We have hundreds of leaders there from the business space and the church space. And the conversation is, well, it's I'll I'll be honest with you. It's better than what you see online. You you don't have trolls in there. And you've got colleagues who can really help you understand what's next for you. If you haven't checked it out, go to theartofleadershipacademy.com. It's our premier forum. I would love to see you inside of it. And we've got incentive pricing on there right now. If you use the coupon code INTROPRICING in the month of March during launch, you can get it for $100 off. It's just $297 for the entire year. That's right. So check it out at theartofleadershipacademy.com. We'll meet you over there. Uh, So grateful for you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on the podcast. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.